So this morning I want to start with thinking about what we sung about all morning. What is the answer to the false teachers? What is the answer to lack of assurance? What is the answer to sin and death and identity and everything that is missing and wrong with the world? What is the answer for everything in the life of the believer? Union with Christ. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, everything we have as Christians is defined by this. And everything we have as Christians is understood through this. And if you don't get this, you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. Because in Him we're full. Full of life, full of salvation, full of forgiveness. And so the mistake often in dealing with understanding what it means to be a Christian, and many well-meaning Christians do this, is before we understand who we are and what Christ has done, we get right to what we should do. And so Christians are known for lists of do's and don'ts. And we typically skip over the indicative to get to the imperative. If you've been around for some time, I use these two phrases all the time because this is a popular teaching tool of Paul. The indicative, it indicates what is true. He gets to the facts first. Let me tell you who Christ is, what he's done, and who you are in him. And that will determine your actions. That will set the tone for your actions. So if you give a command, brush your teeth, without giving the indicative why, it just seems silly to a kid. Well, why do I brush my teeth? It's a pain. And I'm just going to get them dirty again anyway. But if you tell your kid, if you don't brush your teeth, they're going to turn brown and fall out. Oh, okay, now there's some motivation. So there's, there's some motivation for us. If we understand who we are in Christ, the commands to not sin and the commands to obey have a root in truth. And they have meaning underneath them instead of just giving blank comments. And so what we're going to see in our text this morning are two major sections. The first is 10 through 12, or the first part of 12, which... Paul declares what union with Christ means for us, the effect it has on us, what we've uh, received from it. And then the latter half of 12 through 15 is what God has done through Christ. So what we receive and what God has done. And these two things are part and parcel for union with Christ. And both are done in Christ. And both find their meaning in his death and resurrection. Both of them find their meaning and their accomplishment in the cross. And there, there's a term you're going to see quite often. In him or in Christ appears many times in this passage. And it's a term used frequently by Paul. By, by Paul. And it's essential for understanding the Christian faith and the Christian life. But do we fully know what it means? We sing these songs, we say these things. Do you really ever contemplate what it means to be in Christ? What it means to be united with him, all that we have in him? And I'm pretty confident that you don't. Because I don't. I don't think any of us fully understand what it means to be in Christ. And we should remind ourselves of these things all the time. And it is so easy to forget and go through our daily life and forget all that Christ has done for us and in us. And so last week we discussed the, the, the riches that we have in Christ. The mystery as a concept, as a broad concept. But here we're going to get into detail. Okay, what is this mystery? What is this mystery of Christ in us? What does union with him mean? And this, finishing up uh, chapter 2 next week, is going to finish this indicative section. tells you, here's everything you need to know about what is good in Christ and what is false in these, these false teachers, which sets up chapter 3, the Christian life. So if we jump right to chapter 3 and get to all the do's and don'ts before we understand why those do's and don'ts have meaning, then it just becomes moralism. It just becomes empty legalism. So we must stand on the truth of union with Christ before we get to the actions. So, um, I'm going to jump right in this morning. Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 9 through verse 15. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them 
triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. God, we come before you today to marvel at your works, your power and your majesty, to raise a dead man from the grave, but your providence and sovereignty to make that dead man your son. Your grace and your mercy to apply his death and his life to wretched sinners. And your love which directed it all. We praise you for these things. Because it is only in these things and only in what you've done that we can understand what it means to be united with Christ. And we are united with him and his death and his life and his resurrection made holy, declared righteous, sanctified, looking forward to being glorified, and in that we are united to one another. Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that in you we are full. And we have that fullness that we can declare to one another and encourage one another in that. So Lord, I pray that your Spirit would teach us this morning, that your Spirit would guide me, that he would give us understanding that he would give us confidence, that he would give us boldness, that we would stand in the truth of the gospel in light of all the other false gospels out there and all the other false Christs. They have no assurance if he is just another man or just some random teacher or some other God and we are not united to him. And the Christian life has lost its meaning. It's lost the awesome declaration of what you do for sinful mankind. Lord, thank you for this. We pray this in the name of Jesus to whom we are united. Amen. All right. So last week we looked at a few different things. I want to kind of pick up in verse 8 because we have to get this in context. Again, chapter 2, really following the end of, of chapter 1, is one long thought. And so we can't divorce this week from last week. And so we have to remember that in verse 8, Paul told us, don't let them take you captive. Remember, this is like pillagers taking off the spoils of war. Don't let them take you captive by the elementary spirits of this world, by, by human traditions. Don't let them take you captive by worldly things. There are false gospels out there, and they want you to be their treasure. You are the tre- You are. Christ's treasure. Your treasure is in him, but they want to carry you off. And they want to dilute the gospel with their empty philosophies. And there's no shortage of those in our day. But also, they're claiming that there's something additional that you need above and beyond Christ. Something that is lacking in Christ that they must add to you. That you need a higher philosophy. You need a higher human tradition. You need to do more. It's kind of where we are this morning, looking to external things or man-made things or man-directed things and putting them in the place or adding them to the work of Christ. Now we address verse 9, so we're going to address it briefly this morning, but it starts this repetition. Anyone notice the repetition in the passage? And I try to read it so it comes to your attention. In him, for in him, the whole fullness of the deity, you have been filled in him. In him you were circumcised. You've been buried with him and raised with him. You were dead in your trespasses and sin and made alive together with him. And then all the rulers and authorities were triumphed over in him. This repetition of in him is why the sermon is titled what it is. And everything finds its fulfillment in Christ. And everything finds its answer in Christ. And for us, our identity is in union with Christ, in him, with him, in Christ. This is a passage for the saints, as is the rest of this letter, but this is particular. You're going to look, we're going to draw attention to the verb tenses, we're going to draw attention to the details. There's a lot of theology here packed into such a small passage, but this is written to the saints, those who are in Christ. There's no potentiality here. There's no evangelistic, hopeful zeal. This is confident declaration of encouragement to the saints. For in Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The deity dwells in his body. That body dwelt among us, and now that body dwells in us. He made his home with us. This idea of dwelling first started with the people of Israel in the wilderness. Tabernacle, same word. 
God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle in the wilderness. The full deity of God took on body, dwelt among us, walked among us. And now God makes his home and dwells within us. That is the full cycle. Dwelt among his people. Walked among his people. And now lives in his people. And so this is why Paul can say in verse 10 that you have been filled in him. So our fullness we find in our union with him. And so we have to keep in context of where this is. Right before this is a passage about false teachers and about false doctrines. Right after this is a passage about false teachers and false doctrines. Other things that are a distraction from Christ and wanting to take you away from Christ. None of these things can add anything to you. None of these things can take anything away from you. So the context here is important. And he says that you have found your whole fullness in him. But what does that fullness mean? We're going to get to that this morning. What does the fullness mean and how do we receive it? Because this is going to address the false teachers and the false gospels, and this is going to be the answer to it. So we didn't get to this last week. We're going to pick up at the second half of verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So let's put this in perspective. Your head, the one who is the head of the church, he's the head over all things. He's not just the head of the church. He's not just your head. He's the head over all things. He is above all. All things are under him. All things are created by him. All things are sustained through him. And your identity is in his authority. So if he's your head and he's the head over all things, that gives you an idea of your space in the world. Because he has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. And his kingdom is over all other kingdoms. And all other kingdoms are subject to his kingdom. And you, in him, are citizens of that kingdom. And if everyone else is under his authority, we're going to get there in verse 15, but a little bit of a spoiler. Why should we fear them? Our king is the king over all kingdoms. His kingdom is superior to all. And so everything else we're going to see here, we have to understand in Christ's headship. Union with Christ makes no sense if he's not the ruler and head of all. And so everything after this is going to talk about an accomplished reality. You have your fullness in him. It's already yours. So in seminary, we had to read a theologian uh, named Herman Bovink. So... He's a Dutch theologian. We probably read about 700 pages. And yes, there's a lot to go through. But I got one gem out of there. Hopefully more than one. Uh, But a, a lot of reading, he covers a lot of ground. But this phrase that he says really stuck with me. The Christian has to learn to become who we are. And many of you have heard me say this before. But you already are united with Christ. But as a Christian, we are learning to become more like that. We're learning to to grow into our identity. This is who you are, but you still don't fully grasp it yet. The entire Christian life is becoming who you are. And this is where we find ourselves in Colossians. You are united with Christ. You are in him. You are preserved forever. So when we get to chapter 3, it's going to be so act like it. So live like it. We will live the rest of our lives living out our identity in in trying to come to grasp with what it means to be united with the creator of the universe. And so verses 11 through 15 are going to discuss that that fullness, that union. What we're going to see here, it's important, is that every one of these verbs are past tense. Every one of these things are accomplished, completed action. There is nothing that is yet needed. There is nothing that has not been done that is needed for your union with Christ. And again, this is not speaking about some future potentiality, some greater degree of righteousness that you need to achieve, but what you have right now, what has already been done because it's been done by Christ. And so this is helpful when we think about the analogies used here. And the whole point of this passage is you have assurance now. It is accomplished now in Christ because all these things have already been done. You just need to realize it. So that's where we are. So let's pick up in verse 11. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this draws on the Jewish ethnic covenant sign. 
circumcision. This means you belong to the nation of Israel. But now there's something, there's a caveat to it. Language that's used often throughout scriptures. Jesus speaks of a temple made without hands. When he gave his last sacrifice, we covered this in Deuteronomy, he went into, he, he went into the holy place made without hands. Now there's a circumcision without hands. So this is not referring to purely an external ethnic symbol. This is a spiritual reality, a circumcision made without hands. And we're not talking about little, literal circumcision. And every time I preach on this, kids will ask me, what is circumcision? Kids, ask your parents. I'm not going to go into that. Um, but we're not talking about literal circumcision here because it's a circumcision made without hands. So, so there's a temptation to take this literally and to take this just, as about, just about the, the Abrahamic covenant alone. And we're going to get into some of those, those passages in a moment. But this is a, a spiritual reality. So when it speaks of a spiritual circumcision, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off this body of flesh. So we're not talking about a literal body here. This is a spiritual putting off. This, this language of, of putting off is to, is to take off as if, a clo- as if like an item of clothing and burn it. Take it off, never to put it on again, never to be put back on again. So this circumcision means that you took off this old body of flesh. Not the literal body, but we have to think about flesh in a Pauline sense. Flesh meaning everything in you that is affected by the curse. Every fleshly human desire that seeks to serve yourself, that has been put to death. That has been put to death, we'll get there, on the cross. And so there's a dominion that sin no longer rules over us. We are no longer slaves to sin. In this exchange, we become slaves to righteousness. This circumcision, this cutting off. So in the Old Testament sense, it's a cutting off of a little bit of skin that says you are a member of this tribe. But now there's a cutting off of the entire body to show that you are a member of Christ. It's a big difference. It's, it, it's fullness. Circumcision did not save in the Old Testament. This circumcision, the circumcision of Christ, saves And it has its more definitive application in the spiritual circumcision than in the cultic or religious sense. And this becomes the identity of the believer. One of those, if you go back two pages in your book probably, Philippians 3.3, God Paul describes himself and the church. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's using those words intentionally. We have been circumcised with Christ. We are the circumcision, so our confidence is not in, in that flesh. Like that little piece of flesh that, that we threw away, we threw away our whole fleshly body. But this begins with the work of God, a circumcision of the heart. Skipping forward in our study in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 36 has this promise from God, what he will do in this new covenant era. And the Lord your God will... will This is God's working. He will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is a promise of God, this circumcision of Christ, and it finds its fulfillment when he comes. It's also something Paul gets into in Romans chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans. We're going to stay there for a minute. So Paul describes in chapter 2 when he's speaking to the Jews who find their identity in this circumcision who are looking at an an ethnic marker as defining who they are, Paul puts this in in perspective. So Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and, and physical. So this is huge because if you remember, many of the debates in the early church were over circumcision. The whole book of Galatians is written for Judaizers who want Newly, uh, newly believing Christians to be circumcised first before they, can, before they can worship God. So Paul is making a very radical statement here. Circumcision is not outward and physical. So we have to understand when we read it in Colossians, it's not outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. This is the whole purpose of, of, of God circumcising the heart. 
so that we don't look to praise from man, so that we don't find our identity in how other people see us or in our own actions. Hey, look what I've did. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Look how good I am. Look how high of, of uh, intellectual plateau I've, I've reached in all these things. It is a work of God within us. But then comes the real question here. So if I have a circumcised heart, why do I still struggle with sin? This is the tension every believer feels. The dominance of sin. Sin no longer reigns over us because Christ reigns over us. He put that to death. But it still influences us. And this is where we find ourselves a couple chapters later in Romans 7. Any one of you who is discouraged or is frustrated with their own sin, if you talk to myself, if you talk to my wife, we will take you to Romans 7 because we go there so often. Romans 7 is a great picture of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, who has been such an encouragement to the church, who has this great maturity, but yet wrestles with his own flesh. And I can't read the whole passage, but I encourage you to. So he talks about doing the things he doesn't want to do and not doing what, what, what he should be doing and this tension within him. But look where he finds the answer. I want to skip forward to the end of the chapter, picking up in verse uh, 22. This is the tension. Through the circumcision of Christ, I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, my heart has been circumcised. I am now united with Christ. But I see in my members, so in his physical body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Why did Paul warn the church in Colossae not to be taken captive? Because he has to fight every day not to be taken captive by his own flesh. Not to mention those outside of his flesh. And Paul, who stands up and says how righteous he is and how strong he is in his own strength? No. What does he say? Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That is how we understand the circumcision of Christ, who put the body of flesh to death. It is a body of death. There is no life in it apart from Christ. Wretched man that I am, every one of us has to understand that I am wretched. I am wicked. And if it were up to me, every member, every fiber of my being would give into my own sin. But we have an answer. We have an answer. Union with Christ. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. If you're a Christian, you understand this tension. In my mind, I want to be obedient. In my mind and in my heart, my inner being, I want to be devoted to Christ. I want to be obedient. But in my flesh, in my fleshly heart, I want to serve myself. I want to live for myself. But this is not the end. And this is why there's a, there's a problem often with reading Scripture and stopping at the chapter marks. Because he, he continues the thought. Pick up in verse 1. How can Paul stand in assurance? How can Paul praise Christ through this? How can he wrestle with this fleshly battle within him? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. This comes right after Paul's wrestling and accusing himself of his own sin. There is now no condemnation. And then he continues to explain. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ. From the law of sin and death you are free. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Bad news. Good news. Always get to the gospel by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Union with Christ is God sending his son for wretches like us so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because of what Christ has done in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. How do you walk the Christian walk. How do you walk according to the flesh? If you don't understand the gospel, you can't. If you don't understand your wretchedness and Christ's righteousness, you can't. If you don't understand Christ's righteousness um, imputed to you, you can't. But if you do, 
you can walk in the Spirit. Because not only have you received the circumcision of Christ, but you have received the baptism of Christ as well. So picking up Colossians 2.12. So he continues. There's no period here. This is adding to the first... The, the, the last verse, having been buried, having been, again, past tense. He's adding to verse 10 and 11. So you've got circumcision and you've got baptism. These are actually two completely different metaphors giving two different ideas. Circumcision is a cutting off. It is a separating from the body of flesh. It is a cutting off to show holiness. Baptism is an imagery of death and resurrection. So you're being cut off from your flesh you're dying to this, this world and being raised again, this transference of kingdom to a new kingdom. So you've got cutting off in one analogy, and you've got dying and raising again in the second analogy. And it gives you two different, real, two different realities. Now, I'm not going to go crazy into the, the, the debate, because if you're not familiar with the debate, good for you. But it's probably the most question, uh, often asked question I get. What's your view on, on baptism? When you mix up these two analogies, you are, excuse me, you're mixing metaphors when you try to apply baptism to circumcision. They're two completely different things. They signify two different things, and here they signify two different things. So I'm going to write a blog on this. I'm going to go into detail. So if you have any questions, I'll put it up this week. Happy to talk to you about it. And if you don't, just keep going on with your life. You're better for it. So you have been Buried with him. Again, past tense. Baptism is applied or it is a metaphor that applies to something that has already happened. This has happened. You have been buried. And the you is implied here. Having been buried with Christ in baptism. You have been buried. Not just your sins, but you. Baptism says that yourself has been buried with him. You have gone under with him and you are in the tomb. Buried. Dead. Christ died to put the sinful man to death and his sin to death so he can no longer live to it. So I want to get into this word for just a moment. Having been buried with him in baptism. So baptism has a burial connotation to it. But I want you to get a sense of what the word means. It has a range of meanings, but not a wide range. Um, To dip in or under, to immerse, to sink, to drown, to bathe, to wash. You kind of get the idea. This is actually uh, used in secular Greek as a naval term. When one ship would destroy another, it would capsize it. So if you drown the ship, it would be baptized. So when when a ship goes under, when it is sunk, when it drowns, it's, it's, it's baptized. And so this is a cultural word that was applied by Paul to have a greater Christian significance. And this is also a common practice. So ritualistic washings happen within Israel, and they happen within Greek culture as well. So what would happen is before doing something sanctified, you would, you, you would wash. And this is a, a complete washing because the, the Jews believed that if any part of your body was not washed, you were unclean. So that there's a sense in which this is a, a drowning to destroy something that will destroy you. So it's a complete cleanliness. And, and water has always signified life-giving. There's, there's a, a, a cleansing. So this, this picture of you've been, you've been immersed in Christ, you've been drowned with Christ so that he might save you. Titus 3 explains this. And this is also a metaphor that is attached to regeneration. Same language here. Titus 3, 5 and 6. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by how are we saved? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When John the Baptist said, there's one who's coming after me, who's greater than me. I baptize with water, but he baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is regeneration. When your entire body, your entire being is immersed in Christ, your old self is drowned, buried with him at the bottom of the ocean, never to rise again, and you are raised to new life in him. Amen. Amen. And the baptism itself has no significance. So then there are are others who try to say that, that you must be baptized in a physical sense to be saved. Well, Paul has an answer to this too, because in all of Paul's letters... 
he never really addresses physical baptism. The only time he addresses the act of baptism is in Colossians 1, and it's a negative sense. Every other time he's talking about this spiritual baptism. Every other time you see Paul mention baptism, it's applied to faith, union with Christ, uh, or the work of the Holy Spirit. But if you look what he says in um, 1 Corinthians 1.17, talks about his own ministry. There's division in the church over baptism. Oddly enough, good thing that doesn't happen anymore. Um, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied by its power. Paul's point here is that baptism, we're commanded to do this by by Christ. But it is the the reality of the gospel that is more important. It's not any external act that, 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 that defines us. Nothing external can be put on us to give us a different status. Because you who were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised. Baptism has no meaning without death in Christ and resurrection in him. Because if you were capsized and you're at the bottom of the ocean, that means nothing unless you are resurrected and brought again to new life. This is no future thing. He's talking about believers now. This has been done. You have died with him. You have been raised with him. This is who you are. This is union with Christ. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a spiritual metaphor of salvation. For those who are in Christ through his death and life. And just like Jesus' death has no meaning without resurrection, the metaphor of baptism has no meaning without a resurrected life. This is exactly what Paul gets at in Romans 6, why we read this earlier. Um, so you're going to stay in Romans. So Romans 6, I want to just go over a couple of those verses that we looked at earlier. And look at all of these things which Paul lays out in the present tense. And if you remember where we are in chapter 6, this is important for understanding baptism. Chapter 4, justification. Chapter 5, what that justification means, you're no longer under Christ, you're, you're or excuse me, under Adam, you're under Christ. Justification, new headship in Christ. So what does that mean? Chapter 6, got to take it in context. Pick up in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? It's pretty definitive. If you've been baptized, you've been baptized into his death. We were baptized, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's this beautiful picture of dying with Christ and living with him so that you may walk with him. Continuing this theme throughout Colossians, walking in Christ. For if we have been united with him in a death like his and shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, strong union with Christ language, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be drowned, excuse me, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, those who've been baptized, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does union with Christ mean? What does baptism with Christ mean? You too. If you've been baptized with Christ, this defines you. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's the end of the baptism parallel, right? Not quite. One more thing, just so we understand baptism. Okay, you died with Christ. You raised together with him. And how is all that accomplished? What is the only part that we play in this entire thing? You were raised with him through faith. Baptism is meaningless apart from faith. Apart from faith of the person who died and rose with Christ. Faith in the work of Christ. Baptism accomplishes nothing without faith in Christ. And Paul connects these together in Ephesians 4-5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The faith and the baptism of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand because you are united to that Lord. Lord, faith, baptism describes our identity as a Christian. And how is all this done? 
Our faith is the final arbiter of our salvation, right? No. I'm going to ask a lot of non-sequiturs here today, but uh, no, because how does he finish this verse? You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. He tells them, this is what you've received. This is what has happened to you. But it is the powerful working of God that did it. This is an important aspect of our new Christian life. Our power by his, or excuse me, our life by his power. And it is clear who does the work. So there's this, this transition. The subject is no longer you. Here's what you've received. The subject is now God. Here's what God has done, which means he secures the salvation in his power. That's why we can have assurance, because even the circumcision and this baptism is all done by God. So don't look to any other elementary spirit. So before we move on to the next section, just quickly, if you want to read the blog later, you can. But to Paul, baptism is associated with regeneration. It is associated with death to sin and life to Christ and someone who's walking in newness of life. And that's why we apply baptism the way we do. I don't care about tradition. I don't care about denominations. I'm convicted by Scripture. The point of this is, if you get distracted by the act of circumcision or the act of baptism, you're missing the point. Neither one of those are the point. It's a work of God not done with human hands, so we've got to be careful about arguing over external things. And this is Paul's point here. There are false teachers who are telling you there's higher things you must do. Some of them are probably circumcision and, and, and baptism. Don't add anything to the work of Christ. Don't make anything a stumbling block of the work of Christ. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, not just mostly dead, 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 as Paul does in the gospel, as, as, as we should, the good news has no meaning without the bad news. The bad news is you're dead. In your depravity, there is no hope for life. There's not a faint little beating heart that needs to be resuscitated. It's, it's a heart of stone. It is, it is a valley of dead bones that cannot breathe life into themselves. So what is needed is not new philosophies, it's not external experience, it's not circumcision, it's not baptism, it's new life because you're dead. That's Paul's point here. Don't get caught up with this external stuff. You need new life. You need faith in Christ and the work of God in him. And his only union with Christ that can bring the dead to life. And in the gospel, in a way that makes no sense, is you're dead. And you must die to your deadness to be raised to new life in Christ. This is what Jesus says in, in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls unto the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the death to our, our, our flesh. And whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You're dead. And unless you're willing to die to your deadness, you have no part to Christ. You have no eternal life. And this is the message we must stand firmly on. For those who will not respond to the gospel, they are holding on to their own sin and it is their own judgment and death that is theirs. But for us who are in Christ... If we remember that we have died to our old selves and we are raised to new life in him, then we bear fruit and we stand on what God has already done with us because it is God who made us alive together with him. This is a perfect, succinct definition of union with Christ. Alive together with him. That's what we are as Christians. We are alive together with him. We are bonded to Christ in new life. How were you made alive? How were you bonded to him? How is all this accomplished? Because God forgave all our trespasses. That's how we're united to him. And this is not the typical word for forgive. This is, this is not just a general forgiveness word. This word actually implies joy and pleasure in giving grace. This is a joyful forgiveness. It gives God good pleasure to forgive our trespasses. It is part of his character. It is an act of God to say it gives me pleasure through my son to forgive your trespasses. And how? How are these sins forgiven? Not just that they're forgiven. You need to know the how. Again, before you can live like a Christian, you need to understand what it means to be a Christian. How are these forgiven? By canceling. This word is strong. 
It's not just like our cancel culture today. This word, it, it means to wipe out, to destroy, and my favorite, to obliterate. It means, you, you know, we, we've used the language of, of blot out before, where you take something and you completely re- remove it where there's no trace of it. This is obliterated. This is completely remove it where there's no trace of it ever. He canceled it forever, never coming back. And what did he cancel? This is an interesting picture. He canceled the record of dead debt that stood against us. So this is language for a promissory note. Something that you are aware of. That you, it's, it's like a, a signed guarantee of debt. He, he canceled that record of sin against us. It's a confession of responsibility. And every member of, of humanity has that record of debt. Every one of us has responsibility for our sins. Every one of us bears the weight of that, and we can't pay that debt. So how is it canceled? Paul builds on this masterfully. It's canceled. This, the record of debt, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Set aside. This means taken away. Not just put over here, but it is taken away. God doesn't overlook sins. God is a just God. He doesn't, he doesn't say, no, forget that. That sin never existed. He said, take it away. Take the guilt of the guilty and give it to the guiltless. Nail it to the cross of my son. Penal substitutionary atonement. It's your theological phrase for the day. This is important to understand. Because if there was not a legal guilt... And if there was not a substitution of someone else taking that gift on themselves, and if there was not an atonement, a covering for that sin, we cannot have life. God had to set that apart by preserving his justice, by giving it to the righteous one, but also showing us his mercy by putting the righteous one in our place. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He set it aside by nailing it to his cross, for as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Everything that he just talked about, union with Christ, the circumcision of the heart, the baptism of the spirit, all of this accomplished by Christ becoming a curse, by him taking the record of debt for us, so that the promises of Abraham would be on us. They would, that we'd have eternal life and we'd be a people with a God. And we receive that, that spirit as a seal of our faith. He took it all away, set it all aside, full forgiveness, and he nailed it to the cross. Now, when Pilate put Jesus on the cross, he nailed a placard above his head with the accusations given against him. King of the Jews. The uh, Pharisee said, well, say that he said he's king of the Jews. Pilate said, I, I've put what I put. By nailing that accusation to the cross, it became the means by which proved its reality. Because in his resurrection, he proved to be the king of kings. But in turn of providence, God nails our sins to his cross. Our Lord nailed our debts to his cross so that we might rise to new life in him. I brought this back out. So last year for Good Friday, we did a lot of visual exercises, and one of them was write down your sins, sins you are currently struggling with, sins you are aware of, and literally take a hammer and literally nail them to the cross. And I want you guys to have that visual in mind. If you are in Christ, every sin you have ever committed or will ever commit, God nailed it to the cross. If you come up here and look at it later, there are members of our congregation struggling with pride and lust and hate and greed and everything under the sun. But those sins are nailed to the cross in Christ. This is the beauty of union with Christ. We don't have to fret over our sins. We don't have to say, is this sin atoned for? Is this sin atoned for? Because God himself nailed them to the cross. God himself put them on Christ. God himself canceled the debt and said, it is finished. 
they are forgiven in my son. The cross is our answer to our legal problem, to our moral problem, to the problem of our nature, to all of our problems. Union with Christ found its fulfillment at the cross because that's where sin and death were defeated. So in him we have full life, full salvation, full forgiveness for everyone united in faith. But he's not done yet. There's one more aspect. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So it may seem like this is just tacked on here. What does this have to do with everything else we just looked at? He paid the penalty and he won the victory. This is showing that at the cross, the gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. The promise that one day that serpent who terrorized Adam and Eve, who would terrorize creation, would meet his end. God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The head of the serpent will be set aside, will be disarmed on the cross. Let's look at that for a moment. This word disarm here, put away, put off, um, same as in verse 11 where he put off the old body and same as in verse 3-9. Look at 3-9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. How fervent are we to be in putting off our old selves? The same way that Jesus put Satan off, we're to put off our old selves. He disarmed these rulers and authorities. How can he be the head? Because he's disarmed everybody else. Everybody else is powerless against him. And we should disarm our old selves too, not give them any weapons or any footholds against us. To take this a step further in this, this victory, I do believe this is the binding of Satan in Revelation 20. And you get to soteriology, eschatology, and every other ology in this, this sermon. But in, in Revelation 20, when Satan is bound and can no longer deceive the nations, that means the gospel goes out. Satan cannot stop you from responding to the gospel. Satan cannot harm the elect. He can no longer deceive the nations. He is like a dog on a chain. He is held by our master, and he can run his little circle in the yard as much as he wants and, sp- and, and spin in a circle, but he cannot go beyond what Christ has limited him to. He disarmed him. Satan has no power against us. That's why there's no condemnation. That's why there's no separation, because at the cross, he disarmed him. Satan and all his little minions, all his little yellow guys running around trying to do his bidding, they are disarmed at the cross. And he didn't just disarm them. He put them to open shame. And I love this this phrase. Because if you're not familiar with Roman culture, this will just go over your head. But open shame, this is what Roman generals would do. So when a Roman general was victorious and he would conquer another nation, here's what he'd do. He'd come back into his province, his city, or back into Rome, and there'd be a parade. And everyone would, would, would celebrate. They would sing songs to this general. They would have a big party. He would come first, all of his warriors with him. And then way back was the conquered general in ridicule. All of the conquered soldiers who had to do this walk of shame through whatever Roman city they were in. So when, when, when Paul says this, he's pulling on this Roman imagery to let us know that in Christ, the one who disarmed all the rulers and authorities, you have victory in him. You are in the triumphal army. You are the one who is marching with the victorious king. So when we walk through the Christian life, know that that's who we are. When we sing songs, we are singing songs of the victory of our king. We are standing bold because our king is victorious. And the open shame will be for those who are paraded in loss before everyone. And he does it by triumphing over them in him. Union with Christ also means victory with Christ in his victory over all the rulers and authorities. The cross is the victory blow. We are victorious in our crucified conqueror. And like Jesus tells us in Romans 12, take peace. You can have peace in me because I have overcome the world. This is already, this is accomplished, this is what you have in Christ. I want to close with this quote, which I think is really helpful. Max Anders in his commentary on Colossians gives a really helpful perspective here on what this means for us. Because on the cross, Jesus won a decisive victory, making clear to the universe that Satan is a vanquished foe. 
This does not mean that we will not have conflict. And I like this, this sentence here because this brings a lot of clarity to the Christian life. The devil has been defeated, but he has not yet conceded defeat. You know, kind of like those people who just, who, the, the, uh, the a boxer who's been beat up for nine rounds and doesn't really know that, like, he, he still thinks he's in it. He's, he's not in it. He's already been defeated. He has been overthrown, but he has not yet been fully eliminated. So there's still some influence of, of Satan in the world. But look at this for the Christian life. Satan continues to harass us. But when we understand our identity in Christ, we can live above Satan's control. Union with Christ is so powerful because we know if Satan's been defeated, we don't have to fear that. What would union with Christ be? What would new life, forgiveness, salvation mean if we still had to fear Satan? If we still had to fear Christ's enemies? If he already put them under, into subjection? If they are already defeated, then we can live a life in Christ. And this is how we understand our flesh. This is how we understand this, this tension that that we, we, we live in. Just like Satan, our flesh, our body of flesh has been put to death. It is defeated. It just doesn't know it yet. And so we, we, we kind of have to live with the, the tension of, of sin within us. And if you keep union with Christ in, in perspective, it helps all the difficulties of, of life. Jesus has already paid for this. Jesus has already completed it. This have not received it yet in, in fullness. And so we can rest in what Christ has already done So I want to close quickly with this. He is fully divine. And we must understand that because in that, he makes us fully human. He makes us reconciled to God, that we can have new life and salvation in him. And the gospel reality contains new life, salvation, forgiveness of sins, and victorious deliverance from the powers of evil. All by faith in Christ. This is a package deal. You cannot separate these things. They all come together and we stand in them. There is no greater assurance than the identity that we have in Christ right now, if you are indeed in Christ. And when we approach his table in a moment, approach it in that confidence that you share in his, in his body because he put your body to death. I'm going to give you a few moments to quiet your minds, prepare your hearts to approach a communion table, uh, spend some time in any sins that have not been repented, any reconciliation that needs to be brought before God, And we will partake together.